So this is our second class. Um, last week we looked at a short history of the liberal movement in Christianity and what's the fundamental difference between historic Christianity and um, liberal Christianity. And uh, the, you know we kind of came to this foundational differences, a difference in opinion on what constitutes authoritative, authoritative revelation, um, and that with, on the conservative side or the historic side, uh, the source of authoritative revelation was, is the Bible, Jesus, and the Bible. Whereas there's a shift in the liberal side where the primary source of authority, or the ultimate source of authority, is uh, reason and experience. And so the Bible might be a part in, um, maybe a part in cultivating uh, beliefs within liberal Christianity, but the, the final word is what, uh, what seems reasonable and what's consistent with experience. So we talked about that as, as kind of a fundamental difference. Um, why are we doing the class? We're doing the class, uh, first off, we need to, it's helpful for us to understand different traditions and, and different contributions that different parts of the faith have made to, you know, for, for our own benefit. Um, and secondly, too, we need to understand people who are not like us. I'm a big advocate of a liberal arts education. Um, from the standpoint of you need, to, you need to know how other people think so that you can relate to them, you can empathize with them, you can understand them, and you can minister to them. And so if, uh, you know, if you're coming from a conservative perspective, then uh, you know, this helps you to understand the other side of the table. If you're coming from a liberal perspective, you know, today we'll kind of look at both sides, you know, some comparisons from a doctrinal standpoint on both sides, and it'll help you understand where conservatives are coming from. All right, so now here's our uh, big thing today. And by the way, if we just do this class academically, we're whistling by, whistling by the graveyard, it's really of no use. So we need to, you know, this is kind of a church history class or a dogmatics class, um, but we need to do it in such a way where it, it feeds our soul and it encourages us in the Lord such that we can glorify Christ and bear fruit for the kingdom. So um, here's the, the kind of statement for the day, and that is theology drives methodology. What you believe ultimately influences the way that you minister what you believe ultimately is going to influence the way that you live. Okay, and so, um, and so, uh, so just before we pray here, just kind of a starting point. Last year, last week, I, I made the point that it's incredibly important that we uh, seek, seek to step into the reality of the gospel because that yields humility. Because when we talk about people who are not like us, we tend to get arrogant and self-righteous. And so, uh, here's that. We're going to try to walk into humility here. Uh, we're not going to try to be humble because reality should inherently make us humble, right? John Harper once said, don't ask to be humble because you already sound arrogant. Um, but anyhow, so uh, kind of back to what we you know, talked about last week with the difference between um, different, difference in opinions from the liberal side and the historic side on, um, on the source of authority. We see that in the garden, the first attack that Satan makes is on revelation, what's been revealed. The first question he goes at uh, Eve, Adam and Eve with is, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Um, so anyhow, that's the first, the first thing that Satan attacks is... Um, is what God has revealed to Adam and Eve. Um, and so the thing that's really interesting, this is an, and by the way, last week someone asked, like, when, when did this movement start? And I, I said, well, around the Enlightenment, my wife made the best point. She said, you know, 
really uh, everything got started when Adam and Eve took the bite from the apple. That's when the struggle began. Because you see, our college intern, Madeline Argo, have had this, I've taught this text a thousand times, and I've never thought about this. Madeline noticed that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So you see this shift. She's gone from, I know this is what God has said, to now she's operating out of her senses and her reason and her experience. This looks good, and you know, in my opinion, this is what I'm going to do. Now, so you could say, ha-ha, you see, there's a shift to the subjective. Well, here's the thing. She knew the rules. <laughs> like, she knew what, what God had said, but it didn't have any impact in her being obedient uh, because the, the fundamental problem is she didn't believe that God was good and she didn't believe that she needed to depend on the Lord. And so um, as we go through this, that, that's kind of our point of humility here. We can have our theology all right. We can have our doctrine, you know, check, 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 check. But it really doesn't matter if we don't believe in the Lord, that the Lord is good and that he's for us, and then if we don't understand that we need the Lord and we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit for our life. So that's our starting point. Let's pray. Um, Holy Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Um, I pray that this time would be useful for us. And we pray, Lord, that it would be useful in, um, in our mission to glorify you. And ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to try to move faster this week. I started late. I moved slow. I didn't manage my time particularly well. There weren't much time for questions. So we're going to go a little bit faster. Um, we reviewed this. We talked about this already, but how primary difference between liberal Christianity and historic Christianity is the difference of opinion on what is authoritative revelation. Historic Christianity says the Bible, liberal Christianity tends to lean more towards reason and experience. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at, on a couple of doctrinal levels, uh, where you see a difference kind of playing out uh, theologically in historic Christianity and liberal Christianity. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to peg down the theology of liberal Christianity, one, because it's very, very diverse, and two, there's not a static authoritative source. So, you know, if, with, within, within like historic Christianity, you can kind of peg what the Presbyterians believe by looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith. Every single belief that you could ever have is described in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and, you know, it's, you can get a sense of what Anglicans believe because it's, all, it's, based, it's based on the Bible and a certain hermeneutic approach to the Bible. Whereas in liberal Christianity, it tends to evolve. We talked about one of the things last week is how um, there tends to be this idea that kind of God is evolving, truth is evolving. <laughs> what may have been true in the first century may be different here in the 20th century. And so with that being said, it's hard to kind of peg down. So we're going to shoot for some broad trends that we see across the board um, and liberal, broad differences in the trends between liberal Christianity and historic Christianity. Um, the question, here's the question. This is kind of uh, the fundamental question that liberal Christianity asks, is how do we adapt Christianity in a modern context? Uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who's kind of the father of liberal Christianity, that was, that was his whole thing. Is, you know, things have changed. We're in a modern era now. We've learned a lot of things from science. We've learned a lot of things from the Enlightenment. And the world is totally different now than it used to be. And so what we need to consider is how do we adapt our faith so that it's relevant in a modern context? Which, you know, really is a, a valid question that we need to be asking ourselves. We'll see how it goes a little bit to the extreme as the class goes on. But that's, keep in mind that this is, this is one of the questions that's constantly asked when it comes to the, the evolution and development of liberal, uh, liberal theology. All right, so theological difference between the two. And by the way, I'm going to use the word evangelicalism. Um, 
inter- sometimes interchangeably with historic Christianity. I'm not using it in the same way that MSNBC or CNN or Fox News use the words evangelical. That word has been hijacked and bastardized to be basically mean like a fundamentalist like Pat Robertson or Jerry, uh, Jerry Falwell and that whole camp. I'm using it in the theological sense of people who believe in scripture, believe in the need for a living relationship with Jesus. That's, that's how I'm using it. So, just to make a distinction. All right, going along. Okay, now this is a little bit over the top. Um, this is a little bit of a straw man, a little bit of a character, but uh, Richard Niebuhr um, uses this quote to describe liberal Christianity. Um, and Richard Niebuhr, by the way, is not a, it's not like a, a conservative. He's kind of moderate. Um, and he says, his, this is his synopsis, he says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Again, like I said, that's a little bit of a caricature, but you'll see how, like, how, where he would get that from as we go forward here. So we're going to look at four theological categories. Um, four theological categories. Uh, one is going to be view of God. One is going to be view of man. One is going to be view of Christ. And one is going to be view of salvation. Okay? I use the term, I've used the term systematic theology a lot. What we mean by that is basically trying to organize and categorize different different areas of theology, okay? And so first, the first category, um, first category we're going to look at today is view of God. Again, like I said, this is a very broad attempt to characterize liberal Christianity because it's very, very diverse. Um, but anyhow, so in, in, in basic terms, historic Christianity, uh, and by the way, when we talk about view of God, we're talking about like the triune God. Um, not, in, not any person of the Trinity, but just God and Trinity uh, sorry, God is one in a triune form. Um, so, historic Christianity has this balance in a view of holiness versus the love of God. These kind of two components. And so, like, when you hear the holiness of God, like, what are some words or some attributes of God that you think about? His perfection. What did you say? Light. Okay. His... Sorry, he said his, like his justice. Yeah. Okay, like his holiness. Yeah, his holiness and his glory such that we cannot even approach him but by his mercy. Uh, anybody else? Some others may be his omniscience, his omnipotence. Basically, a lot of these characteristics where we are never going to be like that. They're not imitatable attributes of God. And so, anyhow, there's this. I mean, there should be in, in like an orthodox context a balance between God's holiness and then God's love. So the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness, the gentleness. Okay? And so there, uh, historic Christianity seeks to have a balance between the two. All right, now within liberal Christianity, there's going to be more of an emphasis on the love of God uh, and more of a de-emphasis on what we call the transcendence of God or the holiness of God. Um, a good example of this is Albrecht Ritchell, who's one of the kind of fathers of liberal Christianity. The Schleiermacher, Ritchell, and Harnack are like the three big boys who, got it, who, who kind of started to cultivate the theology of liberal Christianity. And um, Albert Ritchell said, basically, our theology is based on this, this statement, that God is love. God is love. And so, with that being said, that's what drives everything. And so he doesn't say, there's not, there's, it's not a conversation about holiness and love. It's God's love that's the definitive driver of what we think theologically. And so, um, so with that being said, there, you know, has anyone heard of this book, uh, Love Wins, by Rob Bell? Um, 
did a I did like a 15 page paper on on the book and like Christian universalism, and the 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 problem and the trend with that statement God God is loving being the driver is quite often it tends to be an anthrocentric or a an anthrocentric definition or a, a definition like a man based definition of love, um, and so instead of like a biblically defined view of love. And so, like, for example, Rob Bell, his, his whole deal is, like, his, the big question is, how could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? Um, well, you know, that's, uh, that certainly is a, a valid question that, um, you know, that everyone asks and that certainly one should be sensitive to. Um, and the book tends to kind of have this modern definition, man-centered definition of what love is. And that, anyhow, so you can see that, oh, and also... So anyhow, that's, that's, that's where the emphasis is when it comes to liberal Christianity is the love of God without a ton of consideration of like the justice or the wrath of God. Um, one last thing, there are, there are some camps in the liberal Christianity that just have a nondescript view of God. The idea is like God is so big, we can't know anything about God, and so kind of everyone's opinion then is valid, uh, which we disagree with that in the belief that we think we can actually, we can't fully comprehend God, that's absolutely true, but we can know God through what's been revealed in Scripture and through Christ. So, um, all right, view of man. All right, this is, this is kind of the next uh, progression in, uh, in like systematic theology, anthropology. But historically, historic Christianity has an, a more negative view of man. Historic Christianity sees the effects of original sin, the effects of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, as very, very deep and is still having you know, an impact on, on everyone today. And so uh, historic Christianity sees man as having a sin nature, um, some people, you know, Calvinists go as far as to say that man is totally depraved. Basically, what, what that means is that everything we do has some element of selfishness or some element of trying to be independent of God. There's, you know, the, the, that in our best moments, there's still some element of sin in what we do. So historic Christianity has a more negative view of, of God, sometimes too negative a view, and we'll talk about that as we go to the other side. Liberal Christianity is going to have either kind of a neutral view or a more positive view of man. Um, and so either that's like man's kind of neutral, man can do, can, you know, can be good, can be bad, not starting from this point of, you know, inherently being sinful and evil. Um, and, uh, and a lot of that's going to be based on the doctrine of the image of God. And I will say historic Christianity a lot of times can have too negative a view of man in the sense of, uh, I'm not saying too negative a view of their sin nature, but to a point where um, we forget about how every man is made in the image of God and how every person does have dignity and is worthy of respect and um, you know, worthy to be loved you know, interpersonally uh, because of that. But anyhow, so with that being said, uh, historic Christianity is going to see a huge problem with the human situation. And so you can see, especially like in our church, from the preaching and the teaching, there's going to be this level of urgency. It's kind of like people are coming in here with, you know, uh, a gunshot wound and terminal cancer versus people are coming in here with a cold. Uh, just, there's a, that's, that's just an analogy to explain the difference in, um, you know, kind of the view of man and, and, and the problem of the human situation. Anybody have any question on that so far? Yeah. When you, those past two slides, thinking about this, it's almost like the um, historic column starts with who do we think God is, and that informs what do we think about man. Mm-hmm. And that the liberal side is almost starting with what do we think about man, and then letting that shape yeah. who 
Well, in particularly in terms of what is considered uh, re- you know, authoritative revelation, it's a, on the historic side, it's a top-down situation. Like We start with what we think God has revealed to us in Scripture, um, whereas on the liberal side, it's going to be more, you know, we have, we see the Bible more as a, a man, you know, a man-written document instead of like a divinely inspired document. And we're going to start here with our reason to make statements about what goes up. So that's a, that's a really good observation. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to say with that. Um, like, so how this may practically work on the liberal side, it's kind of this idea that people are generally, generally good, but environment corrupts them, whether it's poverty or whether it's, um, you know, dysfunctionality in the family or, you know, just this hard world. And we kind of need to rehabilitate people, um, improve their conditions so that they can kind of actualize the good people that they were meant to be. Whereas the historic side is, man, is com- completely flawed and off the train tracks, and we need, the person needs to be completely reborn and recreated through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit. So, okay, next, view of Christ. Um, historic Christianity sees Jesus as fully God and fully man, um, and, uh, and the purpose of Jesus' ministry is to reveal and to reconcile. F.F. Torrance, the 20th century theologian, he, he kind of sums up Jesus' ministry as reveal and reconcile. Reveal you know, he's to come into the world and be the full revelation of who God is. Um, you know, we had a good picture through the Old Testament, but now Jesus is the ultimate picture of who God is because he's God himself and flesh in this world. And then to reconcile is to solve the sin and death problem, to, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners um, such that man can be reconciled to God and have eternal life and escape the judgment of God. So that's a, you know, that's a difference in the view of who Jesus is and a difference in the purpose of the ministry. Liberal Christianity, there's, a, there's really a broad spectrum in this. Um, you know, you can, you can go, um, there are some people who would say, who, in the liberal camp who would say that they believe Jesus is God. And there are some, I've, <laughs> I have a friend who went to a seminary in uh, a, a very, very liberal, probably the most liberal Methodist seminary, and uh, one of his classmates explained to me how she did not actually believe that Jesus of Nazareth ever existed, but she did believe that a spirit of Jesus swept through first century Palestine. And I was like, that's a completely untenable and indefensible position that Jesus of Nazareth you know, didn't exist. It's probably the most documented existence of any person in ancient history. And it's pretty hard to believe that Nero was killing Christians in the first century for, you know, who followed a person who never existed. But anyhow, that's just to give you a, 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 you know, a sense of the gamut. But there's going to be, um, I would say the most prominent view is that Jesus is a perfect moral and ethical example for us to imitate. Jesus was kind. He was concerned for the broken and, uh, and, and those you know, who were disenfranchised. Uh, Jesus was generous. Um, Jesus taught, you know, to love one another and to, to be a person of peace. And, like, Jesus is an example that we're going to try to imitate. Um, and that the purpose of his ministry was to build an ethical and moral kingdom. That's, that's um, uh, kind of Harnack and Ritual both kind of brought that, that idea and that kind of structure for liberal Christianity to the forefront that, um, you know, Jesus came to establish a kingdom. And historic Christianity would agree with that but historic Christianity sees that kingdom in um, far in more uh, terms of like salvation and like redemption of the world in, in more spiritual terms. Whereas um, liberal Christianity is going to see it more in terms of 
living a good moral life and and like making the world a better place in concrete terms as far as serving the poor. Uh, historic Christianity is probably going to say the primary means by which the kingdom is advanced is through proclamation of the gospel. Um, liberal Christianity is going to probably say it's more through um, be, you know, being, a, being a kind, just, uh, loving person and, and looking out for people in need. Um, one thing I will say here, it's a, it's a pretty... If you believe that Jesus is God, it's... Um, there's kind of a necessary connection towards believing that the Bible is authoritative. The reason I say that is because Jesus, Jesus believed that the, Bible, the Old Testament, every word, was authoritative. He said it multiple times. Uh, he quotes the Old Testament you know, over 80 times. And when he, after his resurrection, you know, one of the primary things he does with the uh, disciples, and talks about this in Luke, is how he got out the Old Testament and he showed the disciples where he was in the Old Testament. Okay, so Jesus had an incredibly high view of the Old Testament as God's authoritative word. And then furthermore, with the, Old, with the New Testament, um, you know, we believe that the uh, apostles would have known what Jesus taught. And that they, the tradition, the fixed oral tradition, was they would most likely memorize the speeches of Jesus. Jesus was an itinerant minister. He probably said the same thing over and over again. Some people, some scholars would say that he taught the Sermon on the Mount 70 different times. You know, I don't know how you come up with that number, but hey, go for it. You got a PhD, uh, and you probably got published and secured your tenure through saying it. But anyhow, so, uh, so wait, where was I going with this? So I mean, basically, the bottom line is the content of what Jesus taught um, uh, that the apostles record in the New Testament, uh, we have good confidence, is what Jesus said. So if you believe that Jesus is God, there's kind of a necessary, uh, a necessary connection to believing the Bible is God's word. So, all right, moving right along. Tangent. Um, view of salvation. Okay, now this is kind of the final culmination here. The, your, view of, your view of God and your view of man and your view of the function of Christ is going to naturally lead to your view of salvation. Uh, or it's going to naturally inform or drive your view of salvation. So, historic Christianity is going to believe that man is inherently destined for judgment. Like, the minute you're born, you're under God's wrath. And if you do not escape God's wrath through Christ, then you're gonna, you'll live forever under the judgment of God. All right, that's pretty, pretty hardcore there, but that, that's kind of the bottom line of what historic Christianity believes. Um, and, and so consequently, there's this urgency and this emphasis that there's a need for saving relationship and trust in Jesus. So that, that's why there's such an emphasis on evangel- uh, uh, evangelism and historic Christianity, because there's this the belief that like, hey, you're in big trouble, and but Jesus can save you from your sins. Whereas, um, you know, liberal Christianity, again, huge gamut, hard to nail down, uh, you know, say this is the one view of salvation um, within liberal Christianity, but the range goes from good people go to heaven, so if you generally live a kind of a good, decent life, you're, you're covered. Um, church people go to heaven, so if, you, if you're in the church, um, then you're covered, and, you know, we don't really know about people outside of the church. They're, they're, you know, God's merciful. But, you know, being a part of the church is sufficient. Um, some would say that all people go to heaven, say like Christian universalism, the idea that Jesus' death on the cross was effective for all people for all time and that basically there's no, hell doesn't no longer exist and that everyone will go to heaven. Um, and so, so yeah, sorry, we'll just drop that last point there, but, but anyhow, that's kind of a difference in uh, a soteriological view of uh, historic Christianity versus liberal Christianity. Um, anybody have any questions on that? Yes? Just for fun. Okay. Oh, good. These are always great. There's a billboard in Prattville that says, go to church or the devil will get you. Yeah. 
Where does that fall? Well, it's interesting because some of the people on the White Horse Inn, which is a, a talk show with people who are uh, in different veins of Reformation theology, they would say that that kind of fundamentalism, that like hyper-conservatism, is actually lib- is kind of like a, new, uh, a, a different form of liberalism because um, there's a, a kind of a view of like the free will of man, the neutrality of man. You've, you've got to kind of earn your way to heaven. There's kind of a works righteousness element to it. Um, and um, so, yeah, that would be like, kind of like libertarians are so conservative that they end up being liberal. <laughs> it's kind of like fundamentalists being so conservative that they end up liberal. And yeah, that would also, that would also, by the way, you'd kind of also categorize that billboard as heretical. How about that? That's the category you might put that in. <laughs> Does that work? Does that, does that sufficiently answer your question? Yeah. It's kind of like I say, read the Bible. It'll scare the hell out of you, right? No. So um, no, that's not true. It's not true. That, that, when, we all, when we drive by, I get this wicked witch of the, of the West voice, and I always say, go to church and the devil will get you! <laughs> yeah. kind of, it makes our child cry, but you know. <laughs> okay, so now moving right along. Um, actually, before we go to this, honey, let's, um, let's go to, everybody has a little handout here. This is, a, this is the kind of statement um, it's not a statement of faith, but it's kind of a, on the website for this. Uh, it's the United Church of Christ, which pretty much is about it, probably the most liberal congregation you can find. Um, it kind of functions like uni- universalism with some uh, remnants of like the tr- Christian tradition within it. But this is their um, this is their you know about us statement. Um, let's see here. So let's let's just go through this. This kind of gives you an idea of like how these theological building blocks practically play out in a philosophy of ministry within a church. So first, uh, they say, we are proudly progressive, we're intentionally inclusive. Guided by God's unconditional love, which, hey, right from the start, we're like, good, we're on board with unconditional love. Um, we, are, we are an open and affirming congregation. We are committed to being progressive and intentionally inclusive, welcoming all people as fellow children of God. Our doors and our hearts are open to all people wishing to join us in worship in our faith journey. We strive to create a vital community of God as we care for one another. So you can see here, God's unconditional love, that's going to be the theological driver. Um, they say welcoming all people as fellow children of God. In historic Christianity, we're going to make a distinction between people who are saved and people who are not saved. Like in, in historic Christianity, you become a child of God through... Uh, through being justified by Jesus and then being adopted by God. This is, this is John and this is 1 John. And um, whereas this church is going to say that everyone is God's child. Um, next, we follow the teachings of, of the historical Jesus. Now, remember last week we talked about the historical Jesus as, you know, the Jesus of the Bible is a myth. Uh, it's kind of, you know, it's more mythology and, uh, you know, kind of like the Greek gods and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's kind of a blown up and inflated, fantastic uh, depiction of Jesus from the first century, from his followers. And, you know, the historic Jesus is the, the real person, the person who, you know, couldn't do miracles, the person who was just a man, the person who was born of two parents, not, not of a virgin birth. But anyhow, we believe the Bible is, is a history of God's growing understanding of God. So you can see the evolutionary nature of truth there. It's a growing understanding. 
Um, it helps us explore our relationship with God as we follow the teachings of the historical Jesus, whom we recognize as a living spirit of change, renewal, and social activism in the world. Uh, we take responsibility to act with compassion towards others. So you can see Jesus being defined by uh, social activism is an entirely postmodern, you know, late 20th, early 21st century conception of Jesus. Um, we are on a faith journey. Let's, we'll just, um, we're just going to skip that one. Uh, we strive to do justice, love kindness, walk calmly with God. Hey, that's good. We like that. Reaching out to improve the human condition locally and throughout the world is important to us. We believe that God's revelation through the life of Jesus calls us to live peacefully, to love fully, and act as faithful, as faithful stewards of the physical and spiritual universe. Um, we speak out when we see injustice and seek ways to implement the teaching of love your neighbor as yourself. So you can see that's strong. Like that's, that's great. And, and the, one of the things as we go into this next section is liberal Christianity is extremely strong um, in the category of love your neighbor. Um, one, you know, one of the first, uh, well, let's just, we'll just move on here to positive lessons from liberal Christianity. First, uh, li- scripture viewed as a narrative. Now, certainly historic Christianity would have big problems with how liberal Christianity views the Bible as, as not being you know, the authoritative word of God. However, uh, in reaction to um, liberalism, a lot of the kind of very conservative elements of historic Christianity would just kind of break the Bible down to doctrine and moral teaching. And that would just be dry propositional doctrine and how we need to live morally. And they lost scripture as a narrative of redemptive history. Like God's you know, the, the bottom line of scripture is it's God's work to completely redeem all of creation um, through Christ. And so that, uh, you know, liberalism had a lot of influence in bringing that back into the conversation in conservative camps. And that's a big, a big thing now in conservative Christianity as teaching scripture, teaching doctrine and uh, morality within the meta narrative of redemptive salvation or salvation history in scripture. By the by, um, Jesus Storybook Bible uh, which we sell in the bookstore here, absolutely fantastic on this. Uh, like, it's an absolute must-have if you have young children, and uh, it's the best baby if you can ever give anybody. We already have two. Don't don't worry about that for us. But anyhow, um, but yeah, sorry, I just want to throw that out there. Bookstore, there's your revenue. No. Um, next, concern for the poor and justice. The liberal church is extremely strong when it comes to serving the poor. Um, they abs- they for the by and large completely wear out the conservative church. And um, there's you know. Some of that, uh, in reaction to the liberal church moving towards social justice and care for the poor, the conservative church, particularly the fundamentalist movement, started to kind of de-emphasize that, and it became kind of a blind spot in the ministry of conservative churches. Um, and so, uh, so anyhow, there's actually something encouraging. Like in my generation, in conservative Christianity, there's there's kind of a movement back to the center where conservative uh, historic Christians say it's got to be both. It's got to be evangelism and teaching and it's, and it's got to be service to the poor and social justice. That's kind of a, an encouraging trend within the church. But anyhow, so that's, that's something to be uh, a positive to be gleaned. Next, uh, emphasis on... Sorry, sorry, my bad, honey. Uh, we're still on this slide, my fault. Emphasis on present implications of Christ. Historic Christianity sometimes can be... Um, uh, historic Christianity sometimes can be hyper-spiritual. It's all about, you know, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven. And, you know, basically get people to heaven. Let's get people to heaven. But there's, very, there's not enough conversation about the implications of, what, of the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross for this life here and now. Uh, if you read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, um, 
which I think it's generally it's a really bad book. It, the the scholarship behind it is it's horrible. But one of the things, if if there's if he could have written it with a different purpose, um, if he could have written it with a different purpose to talk about one of the great things about that book is it talks about the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection for the here and now. I mean, it is outstanding in that in that light. And so that's one thing. Um, that's one thing we need to have a balance. Talk about how you know Jesus is. Jesus died for you to have abundant life here in this life and so that you can have eternal life when you die. And oh, by the way, like when it comes to teaching youth, they, I mean, think about the instant gratification culture they live in. They get what they want right now. I mean, get a movie, boom, get on the internet. I want to talk to my friend, boom, I got my cell phone. You know, the whole world's at their fingertips. If you're not teach, if you're just teaching Jesus dies so you can go to heaven to, to kids, you're totally whistling by the graveyard. Uh, they have to hear the benefits here and now. And so, um, so that's just one thing to, to think about. A final thing is the consciousness of the culture. Um, uh, liberal Christianity is fantastic at being attuned to what's going on in the culture and always thinking about how to engage the culture. A lot of times traditional Christianity can just say, hey, we're going to do things our way, and uh, you, if you want to come on our playing field and come on, your, come on our terms, then you can do it. Um, and, you know, that's something that liberal Christianity is very attuned to in, in a positive way. All right, so now... One of the, the, some of the critiques of liberal Christianity would be there's an over-accommodation of the culture. Um, so, yes, we absolutely want to be attuned to the culture. We want to make some adjustments so that, we, um, you know, so that we don't put up unnecessary walls to people who are out there who are not within the church. Um, and we don't want to completely overhaul our, you know, our doctrinal position for the sake of accommodating the people who are in the world. Um, what was I going to say? A good example of, of like this done, being done well and being done poorly is in what you call the emerging church. You may have heard some of the names are like Brian McLaren and Tony Jones, Rob Bell is in that camp. And you have, that's kind of the liberal end of the emerging church. And then you have the conservative end of the, the emerging church. Uh, an example of that would be like Mark Driscoll, who really kind of <laughs> comes across as a jerk. But he, he does, but he does have, um, he, he shows a kind of a good balance here. The emerging church is all about thinking how to engage uh, postmodern culture. Postmodern culture is very anti-institution. So one of the, like one of the things they do is they don't they don't meet in like church buildings. A lot of them will meet in you know uh, warehouses or office space, and it's just a lot less. Um, it's a it's a smart savvy move, especially if you're out in like Seattle or, or Portland, <laughs> because out out there if they, people see a church, it's like you know. Drops up, run, um, and so anyhow, it's, it's a, a good example of, of engaging the culture. They also are very prone to using pop culture uh, in like in sermons and in teaching. It's just a really, it's a really strong deal. But then you have the liberal end of the emerging church, which is like kind of moved away from believing the Bible is authoritative. They've moved away from this idea of like a need for Jesus, and it's kind of more everyone's on a faith journey. Um, they tend to be a little more universalistic now. And so, anyhow, you can kind of, it, whereas, you know, like Mark Driscoll, he's doing all these kind of positive things. And he also, you know, preaches the gospel. A lot of times too loudly, a lot of times uh, kind of in your face uh, to a way that's a little bit off-putting. But that's an example of kind of doing it well, not, not, not accommodating the culture such that you overhaul your, your Christian beliefs. All right, next. It's subject to volatility and bad trends in society. So if, you're, if your theology is always evolving... And it's very much defined by the trends in the culture and trying to be relevant to the culture. You know, if the trends in the culture go in a bad direction, 
then so does your so does your doctrine. A good example of this would be the National Church in Germany. The liberal church in Germany was all about the nationalism with the rise of Hitler. That's part of the reason why Karl Barth left the liberal church because he was so disenchanted with how they could be so supportive of Adolf Hitler and German nationalism. But if your experience in the evolutions of the culture are defining what you do, well, if something bad like that comes around and you don't have an anchor in scripture or something that's absolute, then you're prone to getting on board with, with things like that. Another example Kendall Harmon threw out when he was here to speak was the eugenics movement in the first half of the 20th century here, liberal end of the, which eugenics, I don't really know a ton about, but it basically, from what I read on the internet, um, is basically like social engineering, or gen sorry, genetic engineering. Like we can alter you know, man's genetic makeup to make man better. Well, the apparently the liberal end of the Episcopal Church was on board and endorsed eugenics in the early half of the 20th century. Now we look back at eugenics, we're like, oh, that's, that's really screwed up. But, uh, but you know, so that's the danger. You're, 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 there's a danger of getting on board with bad things that, go, that, are, that are normalized in the culture if you don't have an anchor in, something in, in scripture. All right, third, uh, prone to self-righteousness slash blind slot of personal sin. Everyone's prone to self-righteousness. What I mean by that is if we don't have a, a you know, very a negative view of man, we don't have a, I would say, a biblically consistent view of sin and we don't preach it, there's, uh, there can really be a propensity to never recognize like shortcomings in our life, imperfections in our life, sin in our life, areas where it's our fault. I mean, that's, I, um, I like it when a preacher really preaches sin boldly because it brings me into the reality that I'm really the problem. And so if, if that's not a big part of your ministry, then um, there's just a propensity to not, to not kind of, to, there's a propensity towards self-righteousness and to not be growing, growing and, and, seeing, um, and seeing your own shortcomings. All right, next, uh, works righteousness. I mean, if, there's not a sal if, if we're not preaching a salvation that comes through um, faith alone in Christ alone, then ultimately, you know, whether it's a fundamentalist camp or whether it's a liberal camp, it's going to boil down to self-righteousness. If all good people go to heaven, then it puts the onus on you to be a good, ethical, just person um, to get to heaven, um, which leads to my final thing. And this is, this, this is, to me, the biggest issue and the one where um, you know, I would get on my soapbox and, and get out my, my Amika Martin finger. Um, Amika Martin was a girl I used to teach in the inner city, and whenever she had a problem, she'd get her finger and she'd do this. And anyhow, but uh, but uh, anyhow, it doesn't really it doesn't offer comfort and certainty in death. Uh, you know, that's um, that's why I'm in ministry. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why like my blood like boils and is on fire for Jesus is because like I think there's a huge problem in the world. And I, you know, I, I do believe what the Bible says, that there is a, there is a hell, and, uh, and that Jesus offers a certain and secure answer to the problem of death. Um, you, know, we can, you know, we can play around and say everything is all right and everything's fine, and, but when you're, like, sitting in the hospital with, you know, not much time to live, like, you want a real God and you want a real answer to what's going to happen to you. You know, you want real assurance that the bad things you did in your life, that they're forgiven and that they've been redeemed. And um, if, if you don't preach the gospel, then there's, there's this wishy-washy, nebulous uh, kind of uncertainty when it comes to the problem of death and it comes to the problem of your sins being forgiven. Uh, you know, like, I have sat in um, plenty of liberal churches, and the thing that um, will irk me the most 
is that like the people who are sitting in congregations, the people who are sitting in this room, who are sitting in that nave, we all have really big issues. Like there, you know, on a given Sunday, you have people who are depressed, who can't stop worrying, who may be suicidal, who um, you know are in, in broken relationships, who have been abused. Like people suffer. Like that's the human condition. And if if all we do is stand up and say, let's go be good, let's go support this cause, make sure to vote for this candidate, that's just, it, it overlooks the suffering and the real need that people have. And so this, that would probably be my biggest critique, is we really need to, uh, in my opinion, we really need to say, hey, look, we, we recognize that your life may be a train wreck, and we want you to know that God came down in the form of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He's risen from the dead. And if you're in Christ, everything is forgiven. There's hope. And, uh, and there's a gracious God who offers you real, substantial redemption and comfort. And so that would probably be my biggest critique there. Um, that's all I have. Uh, anybody have any, any questions? No, that wasn't a broad, sweeping lecture. Yeah. So most of these um, things on the liberal side would be heresies, right? For example, um, um, for example the Jesus, taking the divinity out of Jesus. Totally, yeah. That would be, the church would deem that heresy, yeah. But they also all have a nugget of truth in it, which is hard to yeah. God is love. God is mm-hmm. and so that's you can you can draw um, distinctions between uh, historical church or Christianity and then an example in San Francisco. But where it's difficult to see is the examples in Birmingham or in Jackson, Mississippi, where it's very nuanced and that from the surface seems all in the up and up until you find those few. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that important to be a person who overanalyzes every sermon and not that I do that. <laughs> but, but no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Open, open doors, open hearts, open arms. <laughs> yeah. That's, what, I mean, that's just the truth. Yeah, yeah it's true. Can, I mean, you can skip right on over that, or you can go see it, but that's pretty much what you're going to get. Sure. So there, yeah. Liberal Christianity has a jargon, just like conservative Christianity has a jargon. Gospel-centered, cross-centered. Not that I say that every, every five times a day, yeah. In the historical Christianity, there's a high Christology and a low Christology. And it seems in liberal churches, there's still that low Christology what happens to the high Christology? Is it still there? Is it downplayed? What, what ends up happening? Sorry, the, what happens to the high Christology? In liberal churches. Is it still there? Or does it seem almost absent or lacking? It's, I mean, it goes, it goes church to church, but generally across the board it's pretty low. Yeah. Cameron, how, how does... This is fantastic. How does... What's going on inside your head when you're teaching the youth? church. Yeah, because knowing all this, and you, and, and I made yeah. a comment last week about my daughters having sort of a liberal sort of tendency or leaning, right. and a lot of it is around social justice. Yeah. And, and just because they, you know, in certain areas they see, but what's going on inside your head when you're 
Yeah. Well, um, what's going through my head is kind of understanding the world they live in in the sense of uh, they live in a postmodern, they've been, you know, socialized in a postmodern world which believes that there's nothing. It's it's utterly nihilistic and fatalistic. There's not, you can't believe in anything. And everything that anyone does is a power grab and they're kind of, there's, it's a very depressing uh, kind of, uh, present worldview that's really kind of flaming out because it is. It all kind of leads towards nihilism. So I'm, I'm trying to um, understand the subjective way that they're perceiving the world. But also, I mean, I, I really... Uh, some people say, like, oh, you can't go to the objective end. You can't do apologetics. I, I think we have to do apologetics because I think if you don't have something uh, tangible and um, evidence-based to grip onto, you, you just really kind of lose hope. Um, I, I can remember like being a college student and having a huge disappointment after my junior year and like driving way too fast home from college after exams because the incident had occurred right before my last, right after my last exam and just being like, why do I even believe this stuff? You know, this is bull. And, just, and, and then being like, oh, yeah, I believe this because Jesus actually was risen from the dead. So I think there's a balance of appealing to their, their subjective way that they do things, but we also try to give them an apologetic for why we do believe that Jesus... You know, actually rose from the dead in the bodily form. Why we believe that Scripture is God's word, and, you know, in a logical way. To, to what you're saying is, uh, you know, the seeing historic Christianity as mean. There's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that in the sense of, I mean, you know, like particularly in like the, I mean, step on some toes here, but particularly like in the Reformed camp of theology, which Advent would broadly be in that category. Uh, it's a it's generally a kind of arrogant group of people who are, have a lot of intellectual superiority. And um, if you, that's why we have to continue to go back to the gospel. Like, if you believe that you're responsible in any way for any part of your salvation, any part of the gifts that you have, which, you know, we do every day, then you're ultimately going you, to be prone to being less gentle and less kind. So there's a way, um, there's a good talk, by the way, on the, on the Mockingbird site by Jacob Smith called Gentle Apologetics. Um, uh, so there, there, there's a lot of truth that the church does have to be a kinder, gentler place that also proclaims the truth. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow. There's almost a functional atheism that can occur within conservative church in the sense that we say that we believe people are broken and yeah. you know, all the things that you said, but when, when it actually shows up, and, you know, if you're not fitting into a certain theological box in the world, of the, we, can't, we can't handle brokenness. We can't handle... Yeah. Um, Yeah, totally. Part of the emerging church grew uh, grew out of a belief that the tr- historic church was uh, insensitive to seekers, people who are genuine seekers and doubters. They didn't really, uh, in, a, in a kind of a gentle way, respond to that. So, I think we got to go. Um, thank you so much for coming. Let me pray for us real fast. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, we would glorify you and that you'd glorify yourself in our life. And we pray that we would be people who really walk in the reality of the gospel. We know our need for you, but we know how incredibly good and loving and kind you are and how much you are for us. And I pray that would make us humble folks who listen well and who are gentle and um, 
who are, are kind and generous. I ask you to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.